The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, as we come and we see the snow come down, Lord, uh, we are so thankful to be reminded that although our sin is like crimson red blood, you have washed it away with the blood of Jesus and made us whiter than snow. And so, Lord, we come this morning thankful and grateful for all that you are and all that you've done. And God, I pray as we turn our hearts towards Christmas and towards your incarnation, towards you becoming a man, that our hearts would delight and give praise this Christmas season, knowing the great gift of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this past week, I uh, started decorating our Christmas. Our family started decorating our house for Christmas, and I was put in charge of decorating the outside of the house. And so I grabbed our box of icicle lights, and I headed outside, and I strung them together, and I put them up, and I have a picture of it here. You can see I have my laser pointer today, and uh, I really look for any excuse I can to use this thing. So, um, so you can see the icicle lights along here. And as I stood back from the house at the curb and looked at my house and looked at the lights, I mean, there, there are really three things that kind of amazed me. The first thing that amazed me was that I was still alive. Um, if you look, this roof here does not look steep, but it's really steep. And when it's wet, it's even steeper. And so when you're sitting up there and you weigh 150 pounds like me and you are reaching over the gutter to hang up these lights, it's scary because that's a two-story drop. I was not only amazed that I was still alive, I was also amazed by the end of this that I was still a Christian. Um, <laughs> this past summer, I, I, was at, I was garage sailing and I saw this box of ice cool lights and I was so excited because they were cheaper there. And so I, I plugged in the box with all of it in there. The box lit up. I thought, this is great. And so I brought it home. But as I started to string out these lights, there was many parts of it that didn't light up, that didn't work. And so you had to piecemeal all these things together. Trish and I probably changed out 100, 150 bulbs trying to get enough of it to work to cover our house. If you look close, you actually see there's like, there's little balls of wire up there that did not work. This one actually started working once we put it on the gutter, which was a fun surprise. And uh, there's another ball here. And then if you look over here, there's actually a strand that went out um, because the wind blew on it. And so that was... That was a treat, right? That was a treat. So I was surprised that, you know, I was, I was uh, alive, surprised that I was a Christian. I was also kind of amazed that I was still married. Um, <laughs> there is a chance that I might have had a pity party during this. Um, there is a chance that my wife may have sent me to my room to go take a nap. There's a chance of that. By God's grace, I'm still alive, I'm still a Christian, and I'm still married. Praise God, right? Yay! Christmas is supposed to be a joyful time of the season, isn't it? A joyful time of the year. Uh, one of my friends who was leading a community group a couple years ago asked his community group, what are you most looking forward to about Christmas? And the common response was the thing they were most looking forward to about Christmas was it being over. How depressing is that? You know, if we listen to the words of Andy Williams, he tells us that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year because there are kids jingle belling. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. 
kids jingle belling and people encouraging you to be of good cheer. You know, we hope that Christmas will be the hap- happiest time of the year. But for many of us, Christmas is the most depressing time of the year. You know, there may be many reasons why your Christmas praise has been stolen. Maybe your Christmas praise is stolen by family frustrations with your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad or, or your siblings. Maybe your Christmas praise is stolen because of your unmet expectations. You know, we all have this idea of the perfect Christmas day. You know, we'll wake up and we'll have this perfect Christmas breakfast and then we'll have perfect Christmas presents and then we'll have perfect Christmas kids that are perfectly thankful for every perfect gift that we've given to them and then we expect these perfect angels to be going around and perfect pixie dust to be falling from the sky. And then we get to December 26th and everyone's kind of grumpy because December 25th wasn't as perfect as we hoped. It didn't meet our expectations. Maybe your Christmas praise has been stolen for more serious reasons. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently. Maybe you've lost a loved one many years ago. And Christmas just feels like there is a great gapping hole in it without them around. For so many people, Christmas reminds them that they are childless, husbandless, wifeless, jobless, maybe even friendless. And what I would propose this morning is that while these things may rightly make us sad in some ways as we grieve the effects of the fall, as we grieve that things are not the way they are supposed to be, I would propose to you that if you have lost your Christmas praise, it is not because of any of these situations or because of any other situations. Rather, if you have lost your Christmas praise... It is for this reason. It is because your heart has allowed the extraordinary truths of Christmas to become ordinary. Your heart has allowed the extraordinary truths of Christmas to become ordinary. This is something that we as adults do very well. All you have to do to know this is to drive in a car with a little child. You know, if I'm driving by myself and I get stopped by a train, I'm thinking, oh, great, I'm going to be late. I'll check email. I'll do whatever else just to pass the time. But if my car is full of kids and we get stopped by a train, it's like a national holiday. I mean, the kids are so excited that, ooh, wow, look, look how big that is. Look how long it is. Look, look at how loud it is. Can you hear that? Can you see how it presses down the tracks because it's so heavy? Can you feel the ground tremble? Wow! But to us, it has become so ordinary, something so extraordinary. Or when a plane flies over, you know, I don't notice it. My kids have their faces pressed against the glass. That's the fifth plane I've seen today! You see, we're so good at making things that are so extraordinary, ordinary. Does that make sense? And if your Christmas praise has evaporated, it is because you and I have allowed the extraordinary truths of Christmas to become ordinary in our hearts. And my hope over these next four weeks is that these extraordinary truths would become extraordinary to us once again, that we would regain our awe 
of the extraordinary truths of Christmas. And these truths of Christmas would lead our hearts to praise and delight in God. If you would please open up your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Today we'll be looking at verses 46 through 55. It is page 856 in the Red Bible and page 1095 in the Children's Bible. This Sunday and the next three Sundays, we are going to be looking at the Christmas praise of those who first experienced the joy and the truth of Christmas. Today we're going to look at Mary's praise, Mary the mother of Jesus. Next week we're going to look at Zechariah's Christmas praise. He was the father of John the Baptist. Following week, we're going to look at the Christmas praise of the shepherds and the angels. And then on Christmas Sunday, we're going to look at Simeon's Christmas praise in the temple. But today, we look at Mary's Christmas praise. And her praise comes in the form of a song that has been called the Magnificat. And it's been called the Magnificat because it comes from a phrase in the first line of her song, which is often translated magnify. But it can also be translated to exalt or to make great or to declare great or simply to praise. Now Mary was probably a 13-year-old girl at this time. And for us to fully enjoy and appreciate a 13-year-old girl singing this, I thought to myself, can I find a pregnant 13-year-old girl? I couldn't find a pregnant 13-year-old girl. So I invited Ellie, who is a non-pregnant 13-year-old girl, just to be clear, to come forward and to read from us, read for us, Mary's Magnificat. And so she's going to read for us. And so thank you, Ellie, for doing so. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts and their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and, he, and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. Thank you. Mary's song is an explosion of praise from the inside out. She starts by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her soul, her spirit, her personhood, everything inside of her was magnifying and rejoicing and praising God. The truth of Christmas had sunk deep into her heart, and she responded with this great song. Commentator J.C. Ryle says that Mary's song, of Mary's song, he says that she gives expression with her lips to what has been treasured in her heart. Now, some of you might be saying, well, if God came to me and told me that I was going to be the mother of God, if God came to me and told me I was going to be the mother of the Savior of the world, I too would give great praise. But such a thought is actually misunderstanding of Mary's situation. You see, if anybody had a reason not to give praise, 
not to sing, not to rejoice for the message of Christmas. If anyone had reason, it was Mary. You see, if you look back at Luke 1, verse 31, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Mary's immediate response is not praise. This song happens many months after this occurrence. Rather, Mary comes to the angel with confusion and questions, and she says to him in verse 34, she says, How can this be, since I am a virgin? You see, for a 13-year-old girl to be pregnant out of wedlock means that her life is potentially over. You see, she had no reason to believe that Joseph, her fiancé, was going to continue with the engagement and marry her. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Joseph actually planned on divorcing her quietly, but the angel came and changed his mind. Not just that, Mary really had no belief or no reason to believe that any man would ever marry her because she was now damaged goods. She had a history. She had a record, which means she would have lived on the edge of poverty for her entire life. That is, of course, if she was allowed to live. Adultery was a capital offense that could have been uh, punished with stoning to death. And so you see, whatever reason you might have that you think to not praise God for Christmas, I think Mary might have had more. Mary might have had more reason not to praise God because as a 13-year-old, her life was now in some ways over. But what we see here is that in Mary's confusion and bewilderment, it turns to great joy and song and praise because finally she grasped the extraordinary truths of Christmas. And so I don't know about you, but I know for me, as I look at Mary, I want this praise in my heart this Christmas. I don't want to go through another Christmas yawning. I want to go through Christmas praising God my Savior before the gift of Christmas. And the only way that we can do this is if we realize the Christmas truths that Mary recognized and that these will transform our hearts. And so I want to look at the song of this 13-year-old theologian. And I want to see the Christmas truth that transformed her, that led her to praise, and pray that God would do the same for our hearts as well. And so as we look at these three truths, think of them as three legs to a stool. Each one is necessary for us to praise God. And if any of them are not true, We don't have a reason to praise God at Christmas. So the first is this. We can praise God at Christmas because Christmas means that God is mindful of us. The last book of the Old Testament is the book Malachi. And Malachi was written over 400 years prior to Mary. And so for 400 years, the nation of Israel has probably asked the question, did God forget about us? Did we run too far from God? Did we sin too greatly against God? Is God vanished from us? Are we now on our own? But what Christmas tells us is that God has not given up on his people, that even when God seems silent, God is still mindful of his people. God is aware of his people. God remembers his people, and God looks on the humble estate of his people. Look at verse 46 with me. It says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary's soul praises God 
because he is the God of the universe. He is sustaining all things, and yet he is mindful of her in her humble estate. Now, how was Mary in a humble estate? Well, there's a couple ways Mary was of humble estate. One, she was of a humble estate economically. Mary and Joseph were the poorest of the poor. We know this because in a few chapters we'll see that when Jesus is born and they take him to the temple to be dedicated to God, they come with two turtle doves. Most people came with a lamb to offer a lamb, but it was reserved for the poorest of the poor to come with turtle doves. And so she was of a humble estate economically. She was also of a humble estate geographically. Mary was from Nazareth, and I don't know if you remember, but when Philip decides to follow Jesus and he goes to Nathaniel, Nathaniel asks the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not prime location for people. It was not a dignified location. So she was of a humble estate geographically. She was also of a humble estate spiritually. Verse 47 says, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You know, Jesus never refers to God as his Savior, never refers to the Father as his Savior, because Jesus did not need a Savior. I mean, think of this. What kind of people need a Savior? You know, if you're hanging from a cliff, right? If you're hanging from a cliff and you're a bird, you don't need a Savior. You just fly away. But if you're hanging from a cliff and you're Dan Jackson, you need a Savior in a hurry, right? You need an airplane to come in, you need a guy to drop down a rope, and you need him to come and save you immediately because you cannot save yourself. Mary recognizes that she cannot save herself, that she's a sinner saved by grace, and that God is her Savior. And so she knows that she is of a humble estate spiritually. This is one thing that led to Mary's praise, was a deep recognition of her own humility. See, Mary knew that This was not how royalty should be born. This was not how the God of the universe should be born to a pregnant 13-year-old girl of a humble state, both economically and geographically and spiritually. And yet God was mindful of her and mindful of her people. And so she was overwhelmed and gives praise. Her confusion turns to joy because Christmas means God is mindful of her and of her people even in their humble estate. There's a story of a young boy named Jarius Robertson. He's a 14-year-old boy that is an eighth grader and a year older than Ellie, and yet he just stands at 3 feet 11 inches tall because of a rare liver disease. Due to his disease, he has been in and out of hospitals. Last December, a year ago, he was at Auctioner Children's Hospital And the New Orleans Saints decided to come in and visit the hospital. He found out the night before or the day before, and he didn't sleep a wink the entire night. He was so excited. When they came in, they formed this immediate bond, and this relationship blossomed. And Jarius was starting to be invited to their practices, and he would play with them, and they would talk with him. This this, this story grabbed national attention, and Jarius was invited onto the Ellen Show. And when he was on the Ellen Show, they had a telefeed with the New Orleans Saints coach, and he offered Jarius a contract to become a New Orleans Saint. And so that week, he traveled with the team to Kansas City, and uh, he was a part of the team. The story exploded on local and national news because an NFL team was mindful of this relatively unknown boy in an extremely humble estate. 
You know, a NFL team may never know your name, but Christmas means God does. Christmas means that the God of the universe, the almighty God, the holy God, is mindful of you in your humble estate. You know, if you are here and God has seemed quiet to you, if he has seemed far from you, if he has seemed silent to you, maybe you've gone through tragedy and you've said, Lord, where are you in this? Maybe you have chased down unhealthy paths. You've pursued sin and you say, you know what? God doesn't want anything to do with me. Christmas is a reminder that God is mindful of us even when he may seem quiet to us. The incarnation, God becoming man, Jesus being born a baby, remind us that God has not forgotten us, but that he has come for us. And so we can praise God at Christmas because Christmas means that God is mindful of us. We can also praise God at Christmas because Christmas means God is mighty for us. Later in her song, Mary recalls the mighty works of God through the Old Testament, how he has fought on behalf of his people to exalt the humble and to bring down the proud. Look at verse 51 with me. She says, He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. In Mary's Bible, in the Old Testament, there are many stories of how God, through his might and power, defended his people, protected his people. You know, it was the might of God that defeated the Egyptians and gave the Israelites freedom after 400 years of bondage. It was the might of God that defeated the Amalekites who chased them in the wilderness when the Israelites had no weapons to fight with. It was the might of God that defeated the Amalekites so that the Ark of the Covenant could come back into the camp of Israel. It was the might of God that brought down the walls of Jericho without them raising a single hammer. It was the might of God that that defeated the Philistines so that the Ark could come back. I already said that one, sorry. It was the might of God, though, that defeated Goliath. If you remember, the Israelites were hiding and cowarding. It was the might of God that protected Israel and Judea from the mightier and bigger enemies around them. You know, Mary sang of the might of God, who is limitless in his power. And she sang because of the great expression of God's might, the greatest expression of God's might, is probably Christmas. You see, Mary understands God's might throughout history, but she also understands God's might in the incarnation. Verse 49, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so how does Christmas display God's might? How does it display God's power? You know, it's so interesting. If you back up in the story, Mary says, how can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. And then in verse 35, God says something very interesting. He says, the whole, I'm sorry, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power, not the presence, not the love, but the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
Christmas means that God is so mighty and so powerful that God could become a man. That the uncreated creator could now create himself in the belly of a 13-year-old girl. You know, we said it's praiseworthy news that God is mindful of us, and it certainly is, but it isn't unless God is also mighty enough to do something about it. You see, if God was not mighty enough to become a human, he could have never rescued us, no matter how mindful of us he might be. Let me give you this example. Paul Harvey tells the story of a man who one night during a snowstorm was inside his house and he was reading the newspaper. And as he was reading his newspaper, he heard, he heard these thuds against the house, one after another. He thought maybe there were some kids throwing snowballs or something, so he got up to go look. And what he saw was that a flock of birds was trying to come in through his picture window, trying to seek shelter from the storm. Well, the man empathized with these birds. He was mindful of them. And he thought, how can I help these birds? How can I rescue these birds? And so he went outside and he opened the barn doors, hoping they could go inside to take refuge. But none of them went in. He decided to shoo them, but they just scattered. He led breadcrumb. He put out breadcrumbs to go into the barn. Again, they didn't follow it. And as he tried everything in the book, he thought to himself, if only I had the power, if only I had the might to become a bird. Because if I could become a bird, then I could mingle with them. Then I could speak their language. Then I could show them the way to the safe and warm barn. You see, the man was mindful of the birds. He knew about the birds. He even cared about the birds and wanted to help the birds. But the man did not have the power or the might to become a bird. You see, we can praise God at Christmas because Christmas means that God is not only mindful of us. Christmas means that God is mighty enough to become one of us, to rescue us, to deliver us, and to save us. And so those are the first two legs to the stool. God is mindful of us. He is mighty enough to become one of us. But the final is perhaps the most important part of this three-legged stool. We can praise God at Christmas because Christmas means that God is merciful to us. How does Christmas display God's mercy? Well, Christmas, to be honest with you, is a reminder of how helpless we are. Christmas is a reminder of how sinful we are. You see, in every other religion, God sends a prophet or a teacher to save his people. He goes and he tells them. He sends Confucius or Muhammad and Buddha. He sends them to teach the people how to be good people, how to make their good outweigh their bad so that they'll be accepted by God. But Christianity is so radically different in this. Christianity is the only religion where God doesn't merely send a prophet to man, but God sends himself to become a man. I love this quote this time of year. The source is unknown. But it says this. It says, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need was money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need was pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. And so God sent us a savior. See, our condition is so desperate that God didn't just need to teach us to be better. God didn't need to rehabilitate us. He didn't need to give us a moral example. He actually had to send himself to save us. That's how bad our condition is. Verse 49. 
later part. It says, And holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mercy, simply defined, is not getting what you deserve. The Bible tells us that every one of us, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, deserve the justice of God, the punishment of God, that all of us deserve hell for all eternity. As a matter of fact, to become a member of Jacob's well, one of the things you have to profess is that I'm a sinner that is deserving of hell in and of myself. And so if you want to become a member, you have to confess, I deserve hell. But even more so, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to experience the mercy of God, you have to recognize that my condition is so bad that I cannot save myself, that I cannot, I cannot simply hope that my good outweighs my bad, but I need someone to come and save us. You see, God is in this divine dilemma. At the end of verse 51, we read that God is holy, which means that he is just, which means that he has to punish every one of your sins and every one of my sins, because if he didn't, he would stop being holy. He would stop being just. And so he has to punish everything, but God also wants to be merciful. And so how can these coexist? How can these come together? You know, if I need to be just with my kids, I punish them. I can't both punish them and be merciful at the same time. So the question is, how can God satisfy both his justice and his mercy at the same time? And the answer is Christmas. You see, God sent his son Jesus to be a man. And Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that we should have lived. And then he died on the cross to take on our sin, to take on our shame, to take on our punishment, to take on the justice of God so that for all eternity we can experience and enjoy the mercy of God. Now how do we get this mercy? Verse 50, Mary seems to reach through time and say this. She says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Those who do not know the fear of God, those who do not know the depth of their sin and the penalty it deserves, those who do not know how much they need a Savior, how much they need the mercy of God, those who try to prove their worthiness to God, who depend on their own goodness but do not fear God in humility, they do not know the mercy of God. And so Christmas reminds us that we sit in God's mercy. And we must plead for God's mercy. There's a story of a mother who came to Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied to the woman that her son had done two offenses that required justice. And justice required his death. And the woman comes to him. She says, but I do not ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Napoleon responds saying, woman, your son does not deserve mercy. And she responds saying, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all that I ask for. To which Napoleon responds, then mercy I shall have. You see, this woman knew her son deserved death. She didn't try to defend him. She didn't try to say, look at all the good things he did. Don't they outweigh the bad things he did? She doesn't try to do that. Rather, in humility, in fear of justice, she pleads for mercy. The woman knew Napoleon was mindful of her son, that he knew the sin in, his, in her son's life. She knew that Napoleon was powerful enough, mighty enough, 
to take her son's life or to give it to him. But what she didn't know and what she pleaded for was for Napoleon to be merciful. And mercy is what she got. Mercy is what he got. And so what about you? If you come to Christmas and you are proud of your righteousness, proud of your goodness, if you look to yourself as a savior, Christmas will not be that joyful. But if you know your desperate need for a savior and you realize that God has provided it through Jesus, then it will cause your heart to sing. You know, verse 51 goes on to say that God has scattered the proud in their thoughts and in their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty. James 4, 6 says something very similar, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, if you are here and you say that God is going to accept me because I'm a good person, the Bible tells us that God actually opposes you, that he opposes you. But if you're humble and if you fear God and you plead for his mercy, then he extends to you grace. And this is what makes Mary sing. Let me end with this. There is another famous Christmas song that we sing this time of year, more famous even than Mary's song. And it's the song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And if we exegete this song, we see that Santa Claus actually possesses some divine attributes. We see that Santa Claus is mindful, that he kind of knows all things, right? It says, he sees you when you're sleeping, which is kind of creepy. He knows when you're awake, and he knows if you're bad or good, right? We also see this song tells us that Santa is mindful of us, not only mindful, but he's also mighty, that he's busy, that he has a lot to do, he has no time to play because he has millions of packages to deliver throughout all the world. That's pretty mighty to do that. But what we see is that this falls short of the true meaning of Christmas. You know, many people see God as simply a cosmic Santa Claus. That God is mindful, that he knows everything that we've done. That God is mighty, that he's everywhere at once, which is completely true. But here is the unique thing about God, as well as many other things, that keeps us from thinking that God is just a cosmic Santa Claus. You see, God does not visit us because of our niceness. God visits us because of our naughtiness. Do you see the difference? Better watch out if you're naughty or nice, right? Because Santa's visitation is dependent on how good you are. But Christ came because of our naughtiness. If you want a Christmas praise that this world cannot steal from you, remember Christmas means that God did not leave us in our helpless estate, but he sent us the greatest present ever. He sent us a savior that he might pour out his mercy and grace and love upon you and nothing and no one can ever take that from you. It is God's Christmas gift to you forever. Friends, God is not only mindful of you in your humble estate. God is not only mighty for you by becoming a man, but God has been merciful to you if you fear him. And this is Magnificat. You know, my prayer this Christmas 
is that Mary's praise would become our praise. That regardless of the situation that you find yourself in, that your heart may sing, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Let's pray. Lord, we come confessing that we have let the truths of Christmas be crowded out of our hearts, that we have become distracted people. And because of that, we have become a praiseless people, a joyless people throughout many moments of the day, many moments of the week, even as we approach this Christmas season. And so, Lord, we pray that you would recall to our mind time and time again these great truths of Christmas and that they would go into the depth of our soul that we might respond with praise, whether we are at church whether we are in the kitchen, whether we are watching TV, wherever it might be, God, that our heart might overflow with praise for the God who was mindful of us and mighty for us and who is merciful to us through Christmas. As we turn to your supper, Lord, we are reminded of the great cost of your mercy, that it was your justice poured out on Christ on our behalf. As we look at the justice that we deserve as we hold it in our hands. May we be once again amazed by your great mercy for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.